We're going to focus our attention on the call of Jesus to four disciples to follow him. We're going to hear Jesus' invitation to them to become fishers of men. And we will consider what fishers of men means for us today. It's a phrase that's generated a fair bit of humor. Uh, In in this cartoon, you see this fellow who is a fisher of men uh, boasting that he had this big family committed to baptism, but they got away. So that's the the fish tale of the big fish that got away. Uh, This one, the the sea captain is saying, uh, fishers of men, hey, what, what kind of bait are you using? Let's get right down to business, though, and and let's turn to Mark chapter 1. It's page 761 in your pew Bible, Mark chapter 1. We're going to see two sets of brothers this morning who were called to follow Jesus in the gospel reading. They are fishermen by profession, which was the primary business where they lived around the Sea of Galilee. And we're going to begin at verse 16. One day, as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, Come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. A little farther up the shore, Jesus saw Zebedee's sons, James and John, in a boat repairing their nets. He called them at once, and they also followed him, leaving their father Zebedee in a boat with the hired men. Now, at first glance, it looks to us like Jesus was simply out on an afternoon stroll, walking along the lake, and he just happened to see four fishermen going about their business. And he stops, and he casually watches them for a while, because it's interesting, and... and, uh, After he watches them for a while, just right out of the blue, he says to them, follow me. He invites them to be his disciples. And to our surprise, we see these four fishermen leave everything behind to follow Jesus. Or were you surprised? If you weren't surprised, it's probably because you know the story too well. You've heard it so often that it doesn't strike you as surprising but it really, truly is surprising. Now, the first two were the Jonas brothers. It doesn't say that in Mark, but in Matthew 16, 17, Jesus refers to Simon, one of the two brothers, as Simon Bar-Jonas, which means he is son of Joseph. Anytime you see that Hebrew name with Bar, it means son. He's the son of Jonas. So the Jonas boys, Simon and Andrew, were at work fishing, Mark tells us they were throwing a net into the water. The Jonas brothers were using using a casting net. It's an oval net about 10 to 15 feet in diameter, weighted around the edges with a rope in in the center, and you cast it out flat on the waters. The weights sink it, and whatever is underneath it gets captured in that net, and you pull it in, and you've got your fish. This type of technique is still being used on the Sea of Galilee today. There's a fellow using it from his boat on the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus invited them to leave their nets and follow him in order that they might teach, that he might teach them to fish for men. And they obeyed. Now, this is not the first time we find this phrase, fish for men. Much of what we hear in the New Testament is an echo of the Old Testament. 
The prophet Jeremiah, as painted here by Michelangelo, is told to announce to his people the destruction of Jerusalem and to tell them that they're going to be taken captive into Babylon because of their sin. But he also is to tell them that this is not the end of the story. Here are the words of God spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. But now I am sending for many fishermen who will catch them, says the Lord. In the book of Jeremiah, the job of being a fisherman of men is to bring back to God those who have been lost, taken into captive because of their sin, because they've turned away from God. The point I'm making is that this idea of being fishers of men was not a new one to to these disciples. They would have known the prophecy of Jeremiah. They would have known the Old Testament. Now, the the lectionary reading does some humorous things once in a while. And this is one of those Sundays. Uh, The Old Testament reading for today is from the book of Jonah, uh, where God calls that prophet to preach to the Ninevites. But Jonah either out of fear or contempt for the people of Nineveh, wanted nothing to do with this, and he ran away, or at least he tried to run away. And as we all know, refusing to be a fisher of men, he ended up in the belly of a great fish. A little interesting, humorous way that the lectionary pulls that story together with our story today from from the gospel. When he finally obeyed and preached, the Ninevites repented. He had done his job as a fisher of men, and God forgave the Ninevites and withheld judgment. I, I, I took this picture. It's a woodcut by an artist that I like, but I chose this picture because uh, Jonah looks a bit odd, doesn't he? And I remember in college uh, taking a class in the Old Testament and being reminded that if you'd been in the belly of a whale for three days, you'd look pretty odd too. You might even look rather frightening. Next, Jesus moves on to the Zebedee brothers. They were fishermen too. And they were from the same town as the Jonas brothers. Bethsaida, which means house of fish. Every time you see the Hebrew word with Beth there, it means house and whatever is after it. If you're driving down Grant, you'll pass a church that was started by some people from Elam many years ago called Bethesda. I'll get it out eventually. Bethesda, which means house of mercy. That's a great name for a church, isn't it? House of Mercy. So next time you drive by that church, pray for them, that they will be what their name means. Now, James and John were in a boat, and they were cleaning their nets that are used in deeper water than the casting nets. Mark gives us this detail. Two sets of brothers, but they fish with different methodology. Uh, They weren't fishing. They were getting ready to go fishing that evening, and these would have been drag nets, Nets that they would tow behind their boat as they rowed along or used sails, and anything behind them would get scooped up in those drag nets. Jesus invites them to follow him, and they respond immediately. In both cases, Jesus invited them to leave their jobs as fishermen. But there's more. He's calling them to leave a family business. Likely, For generations, the Jonas boys and the Zebedee boys had been fishermen, maybe even for a couple hundred years, because you passed your vocation from father to son, and they were part of a family business. The family depended upon their ability to fish. 
In both cases, the men dropped what they're doing to follow Jesus. Now let's try to put that into perspective. Imagine a man who's an auto mechanic. And he's, he's good at what he does, and he's able to provide a good home for his family and to pay the bills and to raise the kids. And, and the garage he works in is a family business. Uh, like David and Dave, who are on the screen here. I've got to move. I come over, that's why I stay away from you people over there. It's not that I don't like you. It's that it's, as soon as I come over here, we get this feedback from that subwoofer up there. So I'm not ignoring you, please. Uh, imagine this guy, uh, like, like David and Dave, who own a shop just outside Memphis, Tennessee, which is a nice place to have a shop. Those are real guys. And maybe Dad's getting a bit weary. I mean, this, this dad, David, has been in this business for about 45 years. And uh, you get tired of working on cars after a while. And he's maybe talking about retirement. But one day the, the son comes home from work and, and uh, he drops his lunchbox on the kitchen counter. And he announces to his wife that he's going to leave the business. And dad's going to have to work a little bit harder and maybe hire an extra guy. Why, his, his wife asked, why, why would you do such a thing? Well, he replies, I met this itinerant preacher today, and he invited me to join his team, and well, I, I think that's what I have to do. Uh, maybe this itinerant preacher is, is this guy. This is a, an itinerant preacher who lives in England, and uh, I've got his picture because he's got a Facebook page. There you go. But that, that's what he does. He walks around with his backpack and he preaches. Now, where do you think this conversation's headed? Let's see, Dan, where's this one headed? Yeah, I think that's where this conversation's headed. Uh, I think it's going to be a pretty heated discussion around that kitchen about responsibility and finances. And at some point, the wife might say, Have you lost your mind? You're going to risk losing everything you work for to follow some itinerant preacher who doesn't even own his own home? This is exactly what we see happening in the Gospel of Mark. Andrew, Peter leave their nets. James and John walk away from the boat, leaving their father and the employee there to finish the job. Both sets of brothers leave the security of a job and a family in order to follow an itinerant carpenter-turned-preacher. Now, let's think about it this way. What if Jesus wasn't out for a casual stroll that day? What if he was a man with a purpose, planning on calling the Jonas and the Zebedee brothers to follow him? Maybe they weren't just random fishermen that he just happened to run into and decided to call them to join his team. Maybe there had been some prior contact between Jesus and these two sets of brothers. Now, Mark introduces the story with the note that Jesus had been preaching around Galilee. And it's easy to imagine that these four men had heard Jesus. See, Jesus didn't come like an evangelist today where he comes up and sets up a tent and preaches. He walked all the time. He's moving all the time. And wherever he went, he would preach. So likely, he just happened to preach where they were on one or two occasions. And they might have heard him. 
And, and maybe this began to lead to conversations that they would have with one another as they were cleaning their nets or as they were fishing. You remember what Jesus said? What do you think about that? What do you think he meant by that? It's also conceivable that maybe they would have asked Jesus some questions when they heard him preach. Where, where are you going with this? What, what do you mean by this? Could it be that Jesus preaching around Galilee prepared them to make such a bold, life-changing decision? Which then raises the question, what was Jesus preaching as he traveled around Galilee? Whatever it was, it was life-changing because it changed the lives of these two sets of brothers dramatically. It's no small thing they did, leaving the security of job and family to move into the unknown following a preacher with no religious credentials whatsoever. Don't you suspect there must have been something pretty attractive in his preaching that grabbed them? So what was he preaching? We need to back up to verse 14. Later on, after John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee where he preached God's good news. Mark begins with the arrest of John the Baptist. For some reason, Jesus didn't go public until John's ministry was over. We don't know why. But back to our question. What was there in Jesus' preaching that provided the impetus for these four men to follow him with all the risk that that entailed. Jesus' preaching is summarized in two words, good news. In Greek, it's only one, euangelion. This is what we get the word evangelical from. He was preaching the gospel message, the evangel message. Now, Elam Chapel is a non-denominational church. We're not Catholic, we're not Baptist. We're not Anglican, we're not Mennonite. We're... The only word that really gives us a sense of identity apart from Christian is the word evangelical. We are an evangelical church, which means that from our beginning over 100 years ago, we have been bound together by the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's been our desire as a church to share that good news with other people. That's what it means to be evangelical. We're wrapped up in the good news of Jesus Now, there are two introductory things that we can say about this good news this morning. First, Jesus wasn't proclaiming truth in the way that a philosopher would proclaim truth. I'm not saying that what Jesus said wasn't true. It was entirely true because he is truth himself, is the way, the truth, and the life. It was true. But he wasn't announcing truth in the way a philosopher would. He was announcing good news. News is related to events. News references something that's happened. What, what is the news that you've heard in the last 24 hours? I don't know what you've heard. I, I heard that the U.S. government shut down, whatever that means. should happen to us, too, sometimes. Uh, we know there was an international women's march in, in the world yesterday, including Winnipeg. We know that. That's news. That's an event. We know the Jets beat Calgary. Shootout, I guess, but that's news. We know interest rates are going up, which is not nice news if you have a big mortgage. Secondly, the news Jesus was announcing was good. We're surrounded by news. Most of it's bad. I I have a a phone that sits next to my bed, and I check it first thing in the morning because I want to see how cold it is because I'm going to walk the dog. So you want to know what? But, you know, sometimes I'll make the mistake of going to that. I'll shift my thumb over, and I get this news feed. The four newest news stories 
And they're all bad, most of the time. Uh, three Winnipeggers were stabbed Thursday night in the core of our city. That's not a nice way to start your morning. Bad news. Jesus began his public ministry announcing good news. Now, what was the good news that Jesus announced? What event or circumstances was Jesus announcing? Whatever it was, it encouraged the brothers to drop what they were doing and follow him. And the answer to that question is in verse 15, which is a summation of the content of his preaching. Mark 1.15, the time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. There, there are two points in this summation and one uh, what we might call application in this summation. The two points that summarize his teaching are quite succinct. First, the time of fulfillment has come. Jesus announces that with his appearance on earth in Judea, in Jerusalem, in Bethlehem, with his appearance on the human stage, history has entered a new and critical time. He refers to it as a time of fulfillment, meaning that something has been filled up or made complete. Fulfillment. What does that mean? Think about gassing up your car. Your tank is empty. You pull into the station, and if you can afford it, you fill it up. One guy said that, that uh, the nice thing about filling up his car with gas is that every time he does it, his car doubles in value. <laughs> yeah, I left that sink in for a minute. So you fill it up. The, the, the idea is that once you filled it up, it's complete. It won't stay that way very long. Or if you don't drive it, it would stay complete. Uh, it's complete. So what did Jesus mean by that? It might help if we tried to hear his words the way they heard them in Galilee. Jewish thinking in those days divided time into two parts, two halves, if you will. The present age. That's the time when God, who is king of kings, allows lesser kings to rule. Nebuchadnezzar, Antiochus, Caesar. God's okay with that. And then the second half is the age to come. The age to come is the time when God, as the sovereign over everything, rules over the earth. It's a promise that's repeatedly outlined in the Old Testament. We can find this distinction in the words of Jesus a couple of times. In, in Matthew, he says, Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven in this age or the age to come. There's that twofold division. Mark 10, also Luke 18, We receive much in this age, and in the age to come, we will receive eternal life. Now, in their thinking, the Jews' thinking, the age to come was that time when all the promises made by God in the present age would be fulfilled. Everything God promises in the Old Testament is going to, going to come to fulfillment in the age to come. It would be completed. So the age to come for them was a time of glorious grace, a gracious future where God would do everything he's promised. Now Jesus announced the good news that his arrival marks the end of the present age and the beginning of the age to come. That's the bold statement Jesus makes in his preaching. 
with his presence here on earth, the present age is completed. The age to come is beginning. The incarnation of Jesus and his ministry in Galilee and Jerusalem are the events that mark the beginning of the age to come and the good news. Now, the second point made by Jesus in his preaching is that the age to come is the age of the kingdom of God and that in Christ, the kingdom of God has come. It's near, it's at hand, it's beginning. Now, the kingdom of God is not spatial. It just simply refers to the reign of God as absolute sovereign, that God will do what he wishes, he will have his way. There has been throughout Jewish history a longing for the kingdom of God. There's an old Jewish prayer. The prayer I'm going, the, the, the version I'm going to give to you is uh, from 900 A.D., I think, roughly. And, uh, but, it, but it goes way back into the Old Testament. May his great name be exalted and sanctified in the world which he created according to his will. May he establish his kingdom and may his salvation blossom and his anointed be near during your lifetime and during your days and during the lifetime of all the house of Israel speedily and very soon. There is in Judaism this longing for the arrival of the kingdom of God. And, and there's all that deep longing expressed in this prayer. And it's a longing that would have been strongly resonant in the hearts of Simon and Andrew and James and John. And for them to hear Jesus say, the kingdom is near, it's at hand, it's now, would be, yes, yes. That's what we've been longing for. The application point of Jesus' preaching was simple. Repent and believe. We might in our logic want to reverse the order, believe and then repent. You know what? It doesn't matter. They're just one step. Believe and repent. You don't separate them. They go together. They have to go together. Both involve one step in God's direction to turn around and follow him and to accept his role as your sovereign. The call of the disciples that follows this summation of Jesus' preaching that we looked at earlier basically serves to illustrate what it means to repent and believe. You want to know what it means to repent and believe? Look at Simon and Andrew. Look at James and John. They show us how to repent and believe. It doesn't mean that we just simply accept certain timeless truths to be true, but rather we attach ourselves to the person of Jesus Christ, and we go where he wants us to go. We do what he wants us to do. It's the way of the cross. That means that to believe and repent is to become fishers of men. The sovereign king calls us all to help rescue those who are lost. Does that frighten us? It needn't. To be fishers of men means to do what Jesus did. Our job is simply to announce good news. Those events that have turned our world around. What is the good news? In Jesus, everything has been changed. God is on the throne. And 
all of God's promises are coming true. The promises of the Old Testament are very simple. God will intervene in power to rescue and save his people. That's what the story of the Exodus is all about, the the deliverance from Egypt. That's the story about the return of the exiles from Babylon. God intervenes in power to rescue his people, and that's the story of the cross, where we see God intervening, acting in time and space to rescue the lost. So in a sense, this is what it looks like to be fishers of men. We announce the good news. That's what it means. A fisher of men just announces the good news. Jesus has come, and Jesus has changed everything. We're announcers of good news. God's long-awaited intervention for the permanent rescue of everyone who will respond has come. The one who was born in Bethlehem is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. That's our good news. We simply tell the story. But the old sea captain has a good question for those of us. If we're all fishers of men, the question comes back, what kind of bait are we using? What kind of bait? The answer is simple. What kind of bait do we use to be fishers of men? Our message, Christ has come. Christ is king. And our lives... Our lives should be the bait. In just one minute or less, we're going to sing a hymn together. And I'd like you to look at the first verse with me. We are called to be God's people, showing by our lives His grace. One in heart and one in spirit, sign of hope for all the race. Let us show how he has changed us and remade us as his own. Our lives are the bait that people would see at work in us the grace and forgiveness of God, that people would see in us the love and unity of the Holy Spirit, that people would see us in, a, in our lives a commitment to helping others come to God that other people would see in us not a commitment to the things that we own, but to the God who has given us those things. Let us be God's people. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, just as you called four fishermen to follow you and become fishers of men, you've called us to follow you and to be fishers of men to announce the good news that in you everything is different, everything has changed. That in you we can find salvation for our lostness. We can find forgiveness for our sin. And we can find a new direction in following in your footsteps. Lord, we would ask one thing this morning. Please make us good fishers of men. For we ask it in your name. Amen.